0: Ka-ching! The Mumbrella Finance Marketing Summit full program is now available, filled to the brim with sessions led by the industry's most influential and experienced leaders to discuss the current market trends, challenges, research, and solutions. Can you afford to miss this event? With only one week to go, secure your place today or save more when you book with your team at mumbrella.com.au forward slash finance.
1: Welcome to the Umbrella cast. I'm Callum Jaspin and today Danny Bass officially joins Densu Media. So what next? On the way out, Anthony Friedman has also left Havas, departing the group alongside the two agencies he founded in Sydney, one Green Bean and host at the turn of this century. With Havas now taking a new direction with his leadership structure, we'll try and see where the French holding group now sits locally. Finally, I'll be chatting to co-founders of gaming marketing and game tech firm Livewire, Indy Cabra and Brad Manuel. Joining me today, he's already fallen off his chair, once acting managing editor, Andrew Banks. Hey, Banksy. I'm so glad you're in town. (laughs) And journalist Khalila Welch. How are you?
0: I'm well. Nice to have you up in Sydney again.
1: Yeah, nice to see you both. Uh, It's nice to be in the office and, you know, falling off your chair just doesn't hit the same when it's um, through a computer screen, does it? Not at all. How how was your trip up? Was it good? Yeah, it was successful. I had a nice nap on the plane this morning, which is, um, you know, better than the, the usual lack of commute that I normally have. So that's always fun. Were there lots of queues? Uh, not actually this morning because I was actually flying on Virgin, believe it or not, so in the uh, in the trouble- free terminal as they call it. So Khalila tomorrow night, first Mumbrella awards. are you excited? Are you hosting? are you presenting an award? what are you what are your plans?
0: I am very excited. I believe I might be presenting an award. I wasn't originally, but I've had the call up, so um, pretty excited, I'm not going sure entirely which award I'm presenting, but I'm pretty excited for that. And are they regardless. letting you
1: decide um, the winner as well?
0: I, I wasn't even going to open the envelope. I was just yeah, going to guess who free-start. I thought was the best one, yeah.
2: I love that. I think we should all do that.
1: Thanks. What's the, what's the, big, uh, the big category to look out for tomorrow night?
2: Well, there are 31 categories. <laughs> um, I am actually interested in the pro bono campaign <laughs> of the year, and I'm really <laughs> going to try and get that YouTube 2 joke out this year. All right, on
1: to our first news topic. Clearly, obviously not laughing at that. Um, Maybe you've heard that
0: joke one too many times. I've heard it a few too many times, I think.
1: Earlier this week, it was announced that local CEO and chairman of Havas Group, Anthony Friedman, will be leaving. Friedman founded both Host and One Green Bean this side of the year 2000, uh, which now features key parts of the group's local setup. Havas has said there won't be a direct pl- replacement in the work with each of the Havas Village CEOs now reporting directly into global division leaders. Uh, Kalila, um, I, I guess a good place to start would be ha- how are Havas really faring um, now compared to when Friedman first sold his two agencies, one Green Bean and host, to the, the, the group about 10 or 11 years ago?
0: I think... Um- I think there's been some changes in the types of clients that the the group is working with, um, and a lot of the changes have happened. I'd say in the last maybe five or so years since since Vivendi took the group took over the group and Freeman took the um, chair, chairman and CEO role. It is, um, I will say, it is somewhat difficult to see, you know, um, definitively how the how the group's doing since um, earlier, as you were saying when. Freeman sold his agencies because Vivendi only listed in 2021. So we can really only see those figures. Um, Since then, you know, the last couple of figures they've released have been showing growth, but obviously that's growth compared to when they first listed. So it is kind of difficult to know in terms of...
1: um, Also during COVID times.
0: Yeah, of course. You know, everyone had losses during COVID. So everyone seems to be getting some nice growth back now. Um, but in terms of clients, um, there's been a few losses. There's also been a few gains as well for them. Um, some of the bigger clients that they no longer work with, um, of course we were discussing before Cal Defence Force and Defence Force recruiting those, um, I think that was a few years ago they lost those ones and it did lead to a number of redundancies across the group. Um, I think it was Host of Us that lost it, actually, sorry, um, led, led to a number of redundancies at Host of um, They've also lost Red Rooster and Oporto, um, which were fairly big accounts. And One Green Bean used to work with Ikea, Levi's and Lego, but I don't believe they work with them anymore as well. Um, of course, there is a, a really big range of big clients they still work with, like Meat and Livestock Australia, um, Nike, which you'll get to in a little bit.
1: They won uh, tourism Fiji for the whole. Uh, they That uh, I mean, That's a good win.
0: They did. Last they month. also have Char Time. Um, Your as favorite, well. my favorite.
1: And then there was a big win for One Green Bean with um, Johnson and Johnson Consumer. Of course,
0: goods as well. yeah, that's a big one too. And and Body Shop, like there's there's a lot across the board. But yeah, I th- probably um, one of the biggest changes that did happen for the group since Freeman. Um, came on board was that they were one of the first of the holding companies to introduce the Agency Village model, um, which Global CEO Yannick Ballore um, spoke to Mumbrella about, about five years ago. And that was a really um, a long process and a long time coming, I think, for Havas' group. And it's something that since some of the other holdcos have kind of um, replicated as well. So obviously it's a model that works. Um,
1: and then there was also that acquisition of Highland Media.
0: There was the acquisition as, as well, well yeah. And Virginia Highland is now um, the CEO of of Havas Media, so I think that's gone fairly well, and 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 she seems to be doing fairly well there too. Um, so I guess with um, no local CEO across the board now, it'll be interesting to see if they, you know, maintain that that integrated approach that they. Um, you know, proudly developed um, about five, as we said, about five years ago since there won't be, you know, consolidated reporting line anymore.
2: I think the, the CEOs they have in place at a local level are doing a really good job. At the moment, as is, I think the company's in good shape. Uh, it, they'll just continue to report at this stage to the global CEOs. And I think that that system could work quite well for them. I'm just interested to know, from both of you, whether you think Friedman's decision is something in part due to the parent company, Vivendi, looking to restructure, or do you think that it's just something that Friedman decided on his own?
0: My gut feeling is that it's a happy coincidence. Um, I imagine that should they have wanted to restructure and they had have told Freeman, he probably would have gotten out of there pretty quickly and not hung around. Um, So I feel like it probably came from his end and that he might have given them, you know, a fair amount of advance notice. Um, for them to decide what they were going to do. And obviously in this case, they've decided that it's actually um, probably the right move for them to, to not replace him and to go in a different direction in that sense. But um, on LinkedIn yesterday, Freeman did kind of hint towards some other plans. So I feel like it might've been a, a long time coming for him. I think he said something along the lines of him wanting to be young enough to you know, start something new and fresh. So I think that we'll see him probably... Making a move, maybe in in something slightly adjacent to what he's done so far.
1: Yeah, and he's he's still over in the UK right now, so the, there's always the potential to enter into the market over there. Coming up next, Danny Bass officially takes the helm at Densu Media.
0: Cal, you spoke with Danny Bass. Yesterday, I believe, so we can switch roles for this part of the podcast. Much to the surprise of the industry, Danny Bass was confirmed as Densu Media CEO on Monday, replacing the recently departed Sue Sculacci. Bass is one of the more well-known figures in the industry with past roles at Group M, IPG Media Brands, and also heading up News Corp Australia's digital product launch. We've covered this quite extensively already, but Carl, you spoke to Danny last night on his first official day at the group, what did he have to say about his motivations for rejoining media agency land?
1: Yeah, so um, a lot has kind of been made of um, Bas joining Dentsu Media, I guess, going for an established figure like Bas who has, you know, all this extensive experience, especially during a time where Dentsu are very much... Um, Trying to sort of reposition who they are and what they do. The impression that I got was that um I guess a lot of this has sort of been framed by the last few years of um his his venture into his his berry farm retreat. He said he left IPG um after a very enjoyable time. I think that was in 2019, um, sort of with the mindset to do something completely different and sort of scratch an itch of sorts that being that venture there, but he, he, he said that he always knew that he would come back into the industry. Um, so Bass has been involved with um, Unlimited for quite a while as the, the chair of that organization. And he said that played a big part in, in coming back into media agency land um, and sort of having the opportunity to be a big part of talent development at a time where there is such a crisis over talent. Um, and I think on the other hand, also, I, he he kind of spoke about the proposition that the CEO Angela Tangis sold him on, which is sort of um, after a period of going through such change, redesigning the business um, with a lot of non-traditional media and agency figures in there. Um, he said it was sort of a really attractive um, proposition to come into and, and sort of... Um, I guess after making so many tough decisions and reducing so many brands, um, there's sort of a, a a platform there to kick on from. Um, and he mentioned that opportunities like this don't come around often. Yeah, he said we that the agency has a very clear goal of what it wants to be, um, but at the moment, obviously, he can't speak about that too much. So it sounds like he's kind of had his had his mind set on coming back for something, um, but this might have just rolled around at the right time.
2: double barrel question here for you, Cal. Did you ask him about Berry Hill Farm? One, I've heard it's been used a couple of times by him now. Was it just to get the word out about the retreat? <laughs> and two, what's the go with leaving Snap?
1: Yeah, so um, I did actually ask him about that because it, it has been something that I think quite a few people have been speaking about um, very much as sort of the lightning rod of his return to media agency land. Um, Danny kind of laughed about it and acknowledged that the the rumor mill does tend to um, to play its part in these things. Um, I think he, he kind of explained it like this. He, they launched Berry Hill at the start of 2020, I believe. Um, and for a business that is 100% reliant on tourism was probably not at a very fortuitous time and then uh, on top of that he said there has been three of the worst floods in memory over the last 12 months. Um, he said the 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 role at Berry Hill Farm was never intended to be full-time um, and then in combination with joining SNAP mid to late last year. I think there was, um, I guess timing-wise, it, it worked out that um, he had to be honest with Snap and the fact that he couldn't potentially commit to that um, full-time gig at a time where he was having to kind of uh, rebuild and reinvest in that farm. So um, I think he said the farm won out, which was the the, the term that he used. And then um, I guess pretty soon after that, I get the impression he left quite a few months ago rather than when it was reported, I think about six weeks or so ago. Um, so yeah, then after he said the conversation started with, um, with Densu and then shortly after again, a third flood happened at the farm. So, um, it'll be interesting to see how that does play out then because, um, the Densu media job is certainly not a part-time role either.
2: I heard that Umbrella's is looking for a location for its next retreat. What do you think about Berry Hill Farm?
1: Well, one—it's it, certainly on top of mind now, so it's got that at least, if anything. Nice,
0: <laughs> Cal. Do we have any more info on whether they'll be looking to appoint a CARA CEO?
1: Um, not right now. I think. Um, I think I might have mentioned before. He said that there's a there's a clear um, goal of what the agency wants to be. Um, But over the next six to eight weeks, it's essentially going to be on a a listening tour. Um, I kind of get the impression that it's not the priority right now. Um, You know, there's already been, as we've spoken about, many uh, new appointments at at that group uh, this year. So I get the impression. Well, he did did say the door's not closed, but um, at the moment, they're going to give the local leadership all the support that it needs um, in order to, you know, give the clients what they want and I guess um, play it by ear to a, to a certain extent.
2: Before we go, I just want to say nice work on your tick of approval headline on that Nike story this morning, Cal. Thank you, sir. Do you, do you think I should enter you in the Walkleys before the cutoff? Oh, uh, probably not. Um, I don't know <laughs> if it was the,
1: the groundbreaking um, journalism that the, the Walkleys probably demand uh, that, that kind of
2: standard. I think you are well in with a chance.
1: I would say on that story though, it's um it's it's an interesting one with um Mindshare retaining the entire media account locally for Australia because um with these sort of global realignments as we saw with Nike, one of I guess the biggest um global single brand advertisers. Australia, well, Mindshare, this being as far as we know, the only market where Mindshare did retain that business, which it had quite a significant amount of globally. Um We, we saw something similar with PhD retaining its relationship with Google as part of a global realignment with, um, group M's essence, not too long ago. It, it, it sort of an interesting one to ponder. And this might be something that we look further into down the line, um, essentially at Australian relationships with these global brands. I mean, it could be one of, one of two ways, you know, um, maybe. It could be explained by how global brands see Australia as a market and the importance there, or potentially it speaks to the fact that relationships here are potentially a lot stronger and maybe valued better. So, you know, shifting a client just because it's convenient with the, the, the way the wind's blowing in other markets might not always be the best solution. Up next, LiveWise, Indy Cabra and Brad Manuel. <laughs> Indy Cabra and Brad Manuel, co-founders of LiveWire, welcome to the Mumbrella cast today.
3: Thank you. Hey, Callum, how are you?
1: I'm doing very well. How are you both doing?
3: Pretty good, thank you.
1: We were just talking uh, before about your fantastic headsets, so um, hopefully the sound comes through loud and clear as well, as it says it's, as it's um, good. Good place to start. Um you launched LiveWire last year, the, at the start of 2021. It might be um, great for you to begin by telling us a little bit about the inception of LiveWire, where the idea came from and what exactly uh, the, you do.
4: Sounds like fun. Um, I might start and you can chip in for the parts that I missed because so, it's, it's a long but short story in the same way. So... Um, uh, at the time, I was actually, COVID obviously happened, and I was working for the AFL Direct, um, setting up the AFL Gamers Network when we were doing partnerships with um, Epic Games and a whole lot of others running content. And Indy's wife actually was uh, <laughs> kind of seeing the things that I was posting on LinkedIn and telling him to get in touch with me, um, which uh, yeah, he literally started like that. He reached out to me and we started talking. Uh, Indy's obviously got an amazing background in digital media, programmatic. Um, and whereas my side was more from esports influences gaming and kind of started as a conversation that, that evolved into um, a business, which essentially what we, what we do and how we're positioned is um, inside gaming. There's a lot of uh, brands trying to work out the best way to talk to the audience in an authentic and culturally relevant way. But there's also a lot of, um, I guess, sales teams who are vertically only trying to sell one product. So they might be trying to sell live stream or social media or esports or influencers or in real life events, whatever that might be. Um, so we're the first company uh, across APAC and globally, as far as we can see, uh, that really centers ourselves on being able to centralize horizontally across all the verticals and build strategy based on research for brands and then execute that across the entire ecosystem. Um, so that's the overarching part, and we also have a few media exclusivities in Australia and New Zealand, including um, Activision Blizzard Media, for Candy Crush, uh, and Roblox Top 200 Games, and a couple of others as well. And Indy, you,
1: you come from a pretty strong programmatic background, previously working at Dentsu. What did, was this something that you had kind of identified during your pastime working at those media companies that, that I guess wasn't being serviced?
3: You know um actually the answer is no I didn't really come across anything gaming specific while you know in my journeys of programmatic or digital media or digital marketing but I was al- I'm always a audience centric type of person who's always thinking about you know where where the next audience opportunity is or where the audience play is and I was um actually doing some consulting globally to Dentsu um and you know, to Brad's point, uh, listened to my wife and reached out to Brad. And and then, you know, just got to listen to the stuff that he was working on in, in with the AFL Players Network and, um, you know, eSports. And just saw this great opportunity to connect to that next generation of gamers. And, yeah, I, I really just thought um, this was something that was very interesting. And I have a sports background myself. So, um, you know, Brad and I just started to jam and ideate on what we think we could build together and our backgrounds are complementary and i think that kind of feeds into the success of Livewire.
1: yeah um, i mean you've i remember hearing you talk um at one of our mumbrella summits earlier this year indy about your your footballing background um <laughs> and brad you've obviously as as you mentioned there, you've got that deep sports background there in your career so far you, you've both mentioned i think in some of your past output, the the gaming space really needs, I guess, people who really understand it. Um, Do you think that more than other channels, it needs sort of specialists working on it to really make the most of it for brands? I
4: I definitely think so. I think um, like any marketing, there's expertise in different channels. So, you know, we know that it's really hard to be Deep across everything in marketing particularly as things become more digital and there's different channels and different audiences and fragmentation so gaming particularly um is a is a new audience for a lot of people um it can be uh i guess a bit of a challenge for brands initially to understand um, from a media side who has what exclusively from a esports side what are the best ways to enter but holistically there's not too many people actually looking at it overarchingly about as a whole channel with really huge reach, which is about 17 million people in Australia from the last IGA report, and 74% of them users between 16 to 64 in the country about how they actually talk to that audience holistically. So I think it's a really huge opportunity for brands, but also at the same time, um, there's a couple of challenges with it, one with probably a lack of experience and understanding of how to use different channels and make this kind of output, but also when they're being sold different parts vertically um, and kind of each part saying leader, and it's the best. It's a bit of a confusing message to receive constantly from each person.
1: Yeah, I was um, I I, I was going to reference that seventeen million figure to you, um, Brad. Why 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 do you think it has taken so long? And I guess is it, is it something that marketers maybe don't realize how big this market is, in particular in Australia, but also globally.
4: I. Uh... I think it's probably generational slightly. Like, if you look at the generation that grew up with gaming, um, I'd like to pretend that I'm one of the early ones, but there's definitely people earlier than me. But, like, you know, our generation grew up with Mario and Sonic and Mortal Kombat and a whole lot of those games We grew up playing everything from, like, GoldenEye to Metal Gear Solid as as we grew up. So a lot of that generation now, my generation anyway, are... you know, in their 30s and 40s, there's definitely people before us that grew up playing a whole lot of PC games and other games um, that kind of flew the flag before. But I think we've just now seen like a critical, critical mass of people, people playing games, games um, which is really kind of driving a new marketing interest and a big funnel over the top of all of the people you can talk to. Um, but also, we're seeing the change of games themselves, whereas gaming use previously was considered an isolated social hobby. You know, if you look at pop culture, in the '90s, they make fun of you know the gaming stereotype <laughs> as kind of staying at home without many friends and not much to do. But
1: mom's basement and
4: <laughs> mom's basement pizza stains, you know, no job, the whole thing. So that that's the old stereotype, and I think some marketers are still maybe attached to that stereotype in their brains. Whereas if you've grown up in gaming, if you have kids that play games, if you play games yourself, you know that it's very social. Like the the internet and the the speeds that we have and the things that we do now um, have allowed people to catch up. Every single night with their mates the way we used to over phone calls or msn and others except now we do that on voice calls video calls playing games it's become not just a social hobby but a relaxing hobby and an unwind time as well for a whole generation that kind of i guess watches a lot less traditional media and engages a lot less with those channels than they used to they've picked up gaming in really large waves as their their social hobby and their relaxation hobby
3: yeah i was going to say there's also a resurgence of those who played games growing up and then stopped playing and now have come back to it which is um also adding to that growth number I, like you know even myself I grew up playing games whether it's FIFA or <laughs> Madden and then and then got into sports but now you know I just you know got my own you know uh, console and just downloaded Call of Duty and like really interested in games that I wasn't playing before. And I think that is becoming a common theme where, you know, there's many who didn't play for a period of time are now coming back to it.
1: Yeah. It's um, interesting, you know, similarly, my kind of upbringing was playing games like FIFA and, you know, there was always that sort of existing ad integration within it, but it was, it was probably different because you're, you're taking the Premier League had, and then that's being relayed into the gaming environment. And sometimes those aren't particularly relevant, say, for example, if you're playing in Australia. Hmm. Is that, I guess, would that be an early example of gaming integration? How, how, how? I guess, has that evolved over time?
4: Um, yeah, so I think but yeah i think that there's an early there's an early part of like brand integration that brands were probably even unaware that they were in video games i think it's fair to say like you know i don't think too many brands knew that they were in fifa and madden and nba 2k and even if they were they definitely weren't measuring them for monthly active users or targeting them for age groups or audiences or locations so there's definitely been a if, if you look back at the games that you've played across the sports games if you think about um you know the music games, like, you know, the Guitar Heroes and the things that we kind of grew up playing, there's, there's a whole lot of IP and rights and access and reach. You know, I like to throw back to one of my favorites, like Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2, arguably responsible for turning a whole generation of kids into punk rock metal bands uh, for one of the best game soundtracks that's ever came. That and um,
1: Crazy Taxi.
4: And Crazy Taxi, 100%, yeah. So those kinds of games, I think, you know, the, I'm not going to pretend I know the ins and outs of those contracts, but I'm sure the commercials would look a lot different in 2022, 23, than they would have way back when we were playing those games and those brands and those songs were being used in those games, which, which kind of became iconic for, for that generation.
1: I find, um, I find the, the, the kind of, um, I guess the narrative around gaming really interesting because, you know, you mentioned that number before Brad's 17 million Australians playing as of, I think it was October, 2021. Um, but this year, In particular, and at the close of last year, we've seen this kind of mad scramble from brands trying to, I guess, make their play in the metaverse or basically just stake their stake their ground. Whereas, in um, compared to that, seventeen million in March, sorry, May twenty twenty two, only forty four percent of Australians are actually familiar with what the metaverse is. Um, I guess so many Australians already have an online presence within gaming where's the balance there and do you think uh, I guess there's a just a total misrepresentation from brands I know um, you you partnered recently with Uber Eats and their head of marketing in Australia David Griffiths said um, last week the big question is no longer should we be in gaming but how do we show up Indy where do you think that really starts for brands
3: yeah I think um, you know I think metaverse and the word metaverse is, is so overused at the moment. Um, and, it, you know, when we speak to brands, it's very much around practical outcomes and what we can actually achieve by connecting to the gaming community and the gaming ecosystem. And when you think of... Um, kind of the suite of solutions that we provide to brands and our clients, it it actually starts right to the point of research and understanding what the consumer uh, crossover is for that brand and, and really then leaning into, you know, an objective view of what the KPIs and outcomes for a brand is. And, you know, predominantly that's starting to look at things like, you know, customer lifetime value and brand affinity, brand loyalty, but also, you know, could be into more tactical areas and gaming as a gateway Uh, to that new set of audience, you can actually achieve, um, whether it's building a long term strategy to be gaining user acquisition or market share or being defensive, you can actually create that within this new space. Um, And I think the innovative creative space of metaverse is, is is very appealing and, and it's definitely very exciting to get uh, caught up into that. But uh, there's, I think, uh, needless to say, the metaverse is in, is in very early days of of what, you know, the end vision is. And I think um, keeping it practical and outcome is going to be a better use case for campaigns. And most importantly, the outcomes of campaigns that brands are trying to um activate against and it's a two it's a two-way narrative too it's not only for brands and marketers but it's also for the consumers because the user experience has to also be there you know you don't necessarily want to build something that only 10 people are going to show up in and then all of a sudden it's you know it's staying stagnant and uh, there's there's a heap of investment that's been put into it so there is definitely a a balance that needs to be struck and uh, that balance for us uh, is really making sure that the outcomes are measurable and um, we can actually deliver against the KPIs for the marketers.
1: So, can you tell us? So I guess with this, this it was quite a lot was made of this um, partnership with Uber Eats last week. What does that sort of look like in real terms for that brand?
4: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, Uber Eats, we all know as a as a leader in marketing, as like someone that pushes the boundaries. You know, the the campaigns that they've done over the years for, and the tonight I'll be eating work that they've done in the special groups is, is awesome. Like it's it's yeah. really cool stuff. So, I guess. Where it starts really for them is uh, understanding that there's an audience, like to David's point in the Mumbrella article, that the audience is there. I don't think we anymore we have to try to convince people that there's a lot of people that play games. I, th- I think we're well past that at this point. But for Uber Eats, it's how do they transfer and translate, I guess, their brand persona and their goals authentically into a gaming audience and be able to talk to that audience in the same tone of voice and build a relationship. Like, you know, you need that brand kind of persona to still come through and to be the fun and upbeat brand that Uber Eats is, but also for them, I guess, practically, um, we're working through a series of research steps initially. So really building out a consolidated approach that we've worked across with the marketing and research team from Uber Eats um, on who the audience is, who the gamers are in Australia, their habits, their considerations, their Purchase intent, a whole lot of different things, and that will guide um, the strategy that we've written with Uber Eats, and then the outcomes that also come off the back of that. So it's a, it's a really exciting time as we narrow down. Um, I guess there's a whole lot of high level research in Australia on you know what people are doing more broadly, but the part of our research that we really focus on in Livewire is much more specifically on interests and behaviours and habits and hobbies and considerations, and and this is really going to be able to drive forward. Um, motivations of audiences within the category for playing games and you know also how they want a brand to show up themselves and what kind of value consumers are after so like indy said being consumer and audience led and also thinking about how to have a really good experience like we we're not the ones waving the flag for branches just to come in and spend a hundred thousand dollars and tick it off the list and just say, yes, I did gaming this year.
1: Like, gaming, yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah. You know, I, with the win gaming or the the other one that we see is the, you know, I'm trying to get a lion by doing a gaming activation, and that's all I've really planned. So yeah. we really like working with UberX because they are leaders in the space, but they're also Looking towards a long term end goal of like how to really authentically engage the consumer, and we think that's that's what we'll be seeing over the next six months and into the next years as we work together
1: yeah I think the 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 point about authenticity is is I think probably the main one for brands to to actually have to I guess get over there because you know I, I mean I personally I don't have any games on my mobile anymore. Um, I, I remember I used to, and then, you know, you would always, all the ads would it kind of always seem very much like kind of pop-up ads and maybe something you shouldn't click on. Is that, um, <laughs> uh, I guess, you know, is, is, is that something that maybe is the biggest hurdle for brands? I know you've, um, you've also signed a partnership with Activision, Blizzard, a media, one of the biggest global um, players in the space. H- how are you kind of working with them, indie, to make those interactions more authentic?
3: Yeah, um, you know, with our strategy around gaming media, it's it's very much around connecting to the entire audience spectrum for for gamers and. You know with activision blizzard media their candy crush um asset you know we're able to really connect with the female audience within gaming and you know it's near parity in in australia from male to female from a gaming audience perspective and those are the types of um strategic acquisitions around gaming media and par- partnerships with publishers that we're starting to look at um and i think that when we think of ad formats like anything it's evolving quickly, and the innovation and the technology that is sitting behind um, transacting advertising within gaming experiences and environments is um, developing well in a way where we're able to um, integrate ad placements in a way that is authentic to your point, but also non-intrusive. Um, and you know, you're not getting bombarded by you know intrusive ad formats that you know maybe in past times. Um, you know, was, was probably keeping people away from using you know, mobile games for for the better better state of time, but I think that that's starting to evolve. And for marketers, the measurement piece is also um, being able to uh, measure campaigns from a you know utilizing brand safety, viewability, uh, brand lift studies, um, looking at attribution. All of those integrated uh, opportunities are now available when we're running campaigns. So I think that you know we've we've been able to really grow quickly as a as a sector around technology innovation and also measurement which is which are key when we're when we're reporting back on outcomes
1: and you, you know you say growth as a sector very quickly but you've also grown very quickly as a company you've launched already um, in your short existence as a company into London and we we're chatting about India and Singapore just before how, how did those come around was that well first of all was that sort of something you pinpointed when you were setting up those were the the first places you wanted to grow into and then I guess um, it came around very quickly.
3: Yeah when we launched the business I Brad and I been very ambitious from the start and wanting to create a global business that um, you know delivered best in class across gaming marketing and game tech and um, you know globally there's three billion gamers in the world and 1.6 billion sit in Asia Pacific so APAC was definitely a focal point for us and you know Southeast Asia being you know rich with mobile gaming and you know obviously with scale and population and you know some of the key markets we we wanted to target um and, and launch in that region and we were able to find uh, the right talent to do that. Um and same in India. Um there's about four hundred million gamers that sit in the India market and it's and it's also going through this very similar growth stage within gaming and esports, and um, those were two markets that we really wanted to um, enter, in which we we have. And the other is uh, the UK, which is the number one gaming market in Europe, and uh, we were able to bring on um, you know talented staff to to support our growth in EMEA And we have now more markets that we're currently looking at, uh, including you know potentially uh, the Americas and um, potentially Germany and potentially Japan.
1: Right, I get, I get the impression that um, you're both very level-headed about, I guess, the, the opportunities in this space, unlike, you know, as we talked about before, the metaverse. I feel like there's this this conversation about trying to grow into areas that maybe don't even exist yet, whereas you've got this massive playground here. Um, I guess you're very carefully, I guess, um, approaching it and trying to do, as you said there, a best-in-class approach. What what do you think comes next in this space for not only just Livewire but, um, I guess, gaming and marketing technology?
4: Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, I'd like to project forward into the future for some of it to start with. So best-in-class gaming, five, ten years from now, maybe we... I think we'll see more and more brands really authentically woven into games, not just from an advertising point of view. Um, we've seen some bad examples already, probably some how not to do it. But the idea and the concept is right. Like if a game like um, Apex Legends or a Cyberpunk or a, any game that's based in a world where advertising currently exists or previously existed, the game creators actually make fake. And fake worlds, fake shops, fake stores, fake products, because the, a modern day world doesn't actually feel accurate without products. You know, it'd be weird to walk around a game like that and everything's just black and white labelled and, you know, kind of doesn't have anything to it. So I think we'll see more and more global and regional partnerships of how this will integrate into games and also how publishers will upgrade their technology to be able to regionally cut and kind of segment deals the same way they would for like sports led where they overlay it with different um graphics and pieces i think we will see a rise of more more and more social gaming and potentially decentralized identities online i don't want to use all the buzzwords and go all web3 metaverse nft whatever else is going around but (laughs) i think generations definitely have been moving away from social platforms that um target generations more and capture more of their data and then kind of like more of the anonymity and potentially the avatar side. I think the challenge of that is uh, the stat that Indy pulled the other day was that currently there's 11,000 metaverses. The concept of a metaverse was that it was supposed to be a, an internet 2.0, a centralized place where you could hang out kind of without people following your profile online and you know, you have payment link to and others. So will we get to a point where we see interoperability of game characters and avatars in the near future, maybe. It seems like a really nice pipe dream where, you know, you can wear your same super dry hoodie that you bought or a suit from, you know, Hugo Boss, whatever you want to wear in game that you can play within it. But there's a couple of challenges to that. One is that we know it took literally decades for um, the gaming companies to be able to play games like Fortnite across console and PC. So you have the publisher challenges of how those integrate with each other, you have the payment systems that are the same, but then you also uh, start looking at, I guess, the money and the cutouts and how it kind of happens. So I, I think long term, we will move towards a more and more socialized point of gaming. Internet speeds will get better, latency will get better, the global opportunities will become more, but brands will also understand the category more. And um, you know, Maybe this is hopefully, but they traditional channels, I guess, that are Maybe not reaching these audiences as much, we'll actually start looking at reportioning budget to find new ways to engage the audience across the kind of ecosystem for gamers, which will be really cool.
1: India might throw that same one to you and get your <laughs> your take on it.
3: Yeah, I look, I think we um, where I always look at that. Bell curve of, of maturity and adoption, and I think we're we're still at that early stage of that, and which is which is really exciting to have the business positioned at that point. Um, but going into you know next year, you know we see a longer list of non endemic brands who are really going to lean in and going to require that that level of support around um, you know what does what does entering into the gaming ecosystem look like and what are the best ways to do that for their brand specifically. And um, as we grow, you know, w- we want the entire space to grow with us and and, and vice versa. So I think, um, you know, it's a good start, um, but there's so much more for us as a business to do. And to Brad's point, I think both sides whether it's from the gaming publisher's perspective or from the brand marketer's perspective, the one thing is clear that, um, you know, there is a a growing interest and um, drive to build gaming marketing as an opportunity for for everybody in the gaming ecosystem.
1: Well, Indy and Brad, thank you very much for joining me today.
3: Thanks, mate. Thanks for having us, mate. Well, that is it for another
1: week on the Mumbrella cast. Please make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast platform and check out mumbrella.com.au for all the content and updates that you need as well as getting those lucrative tickets to our upcoming conferences. Banksy, Khalila, thank you for joining me once again.
0: Thank you.
1: See you both at the party. (laughs) Thanks to Indy and Brad too. And if you're coming down to the awards, make sure you look out for whatever bizarre outfit Banks wearing this time. See you next week. Thanks, Kevin.
4: (laughs) Whoa.
2: (laughs) Don't lean back on these chairs, by the way.